Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Those darn loons are around every week. They are? Well, they are fond of the show. Apparently. They're uh, avid listeners, Mike, with their little bird headphones. <laughs> Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, Scott, and hello to all of you gorgeous folks. Very nice. Now let's listen to our disclaimer. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. And here's another disclaimer, just in case you didn't get it from the first one. You can't have too many disclaimers. No, uh, for a lot of different reasons. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Mm -hmm. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. That's it. We're not reporters. Oh, hell no. We are not. Oh, good God, no. That, uh, what a disservice we would be doing to journalism <laughs> exactly. if that's what we were. Exactly. We're just trying to tell a story. Yeah. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and in the Nanaimo bar, it's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of mistakes, oh. before we begin, mm-hmm. I want to make a correction. Uh-oh. A couple of listeners pointed out an error I felt it proper to rectify. This is more proof that we're not journalists. Okay. Is, was it a grammar error? No. Oh. Last week, I said that Nobel Prize winning scientist Frederick Banting was from Newfoundland. Yeah. He was not. Whoa, okay. He, was, right. he died in Newfoundland. That counts. It doesn't actually. If you were either, in my books, if you were either uh, created or left the world there, that's where you're from. He lived his last few moments there after a plane crash in Musgrave Harbor. Oh, so he wasn't even living there? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, hey. Yeah, so he was Uh, born in Alliston, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto. So people from Alliston who are very proud of that fact, let me know that. Okay, well, I mean... Don't blame Scott for this. It's all on me. We're lucky he knows what day it is. <laughs> I, I'm Look, I'm happy being a buffer. Take it out on me. It's all good. No. Because I won't know what the hell you're talking but about. But there you so. go. So if we make mistakes, we're willing to correct them if they're big. If it's just a mispronunciation or uh, we say a place name wrong or we get a province wrong. 
Yeah. Well, that or was pretty name. that or was pretty name. big. I thought Frederick Banting's history was important, so. Yeah. Yeah. So important all... enough to say I made a boo boo. I mean, you were like on the you got the continent, right? Well, <laughs> sure. That's close enough in my yeah. books. Yeah. This is episode 102. Hmm. This week we'll be discussing the annihilation of nine members of the Peterson family in Shell Lake, Saskatchewan, at the hands of a single frenzied gunman during the summer of 1967. So the deaths include two adults and seven children ranging in age 17 all the way to a year and a half old. So this is going to be some intensity, folks. Uh We've avoided as much detail as possible. But to properly tell the story, we have to go into some which some of you may find quite distressing, which is one of the reasons why we've waited to cover this, another of one of our most requested cases. Yeah, even with the detail on it, I'm sure this will have a heavy impact. Mm -hmm. Another factor in holding off for as long as we have is this is one of the most talked about cases in Canada. A number of other podcasts have covered it, including Canadian True Crime and Occulte Veritatis, So you may be familiar with this story. Our hope is that we can give this well-known case a bit of a fresh perspective, as is our goal with every case. This is Murder in Shell Lake, the Peterson family slayings. Okay, let's get into this. Much of the research from this episode comes from numerous historical news articles on the events surrounding this case. Two articles in particular were written by David Carmichael. And he was a reporter for The Canadian in the 60s. Oh. And another valuable resource has been Winnipeg author Peter Tadman's book, first printed in 1992, and it's called Shell Lake Massacre. Some Winnipeg representation. Yeah. The website for the village of Shell Lake, Saskatchewan, claims it is currently home to just 152 people. In 1967, the time this story takes place... Farming was more lucrative on the Canadian prairies and another hundred people called the little community home. So 250 people lived there. Even in its heyday, that's tiny. Very tiny. Wow. The village is located 135 kilometers from Saskatoon and 90 kilometers west of Prince Albert. I don't Saskatoon. I've I've been through Saskatoon. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. The community is now known more as a recreational area than for farming. From villageofshelllake.ca, quote, We are surrounded by lakes, hills, forest, and farmlands. Here you can fish, swim, canoe, hike, go on horseback rides, take an overnight wagon trek. That sounds fun. Whoa. Golf at our 18-hole golf course, try miniature golfing, or just relax at our campsite near the lake. This is the place you can come with your family, let your kids run and play, and enjoy the friendly small-town atmosphere. Atmosphere. We invite you to come and relax, revive, and rejuvenate at our oasis in the parkland. End quote. I'm, I'm there. I'm there, that too. That sounds That's, like I could really use a, a whole bunch of that right it now. It sounds lovely. Right? Let's, yes. let's go, Mike. We'll hold hands and all. <laughs> the tiny village museum boasts highlights of life around the area throughout its colonial history. Especially notable in the area's past is the importance of the CN Railroad, which passed through. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a quaint little place, and I love little towns oh, like that. Oh, pure heaven at this point. Could you live in a small town, though? For a good majority of my life, I thought, no, no, yeah. I, I need big city to live in. I need the convenience. Stuff going on. And I, I was born in a very small town, Clearwater, yeah. and yeah. I always thought, like, well, th- thank God we moved away from there. Now, 
at 46? I'm like, oh yeah, I can I could really yeah, go give for, me the I small. Could, as long as I have like ridiculously fast internet. Yep. I'm good. Yeah, exa- I, I, I kind of feel the same yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, like I'm I'm totally good. Just like open my window. We could do hear, this from a small town. Fuck, it's so true. Just imagine imagine that, Mike, just opening your window and just hearing birds. Our friend Jack Luna does his thing from a really small place in, in Manitoba. Does he? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, when I visited him, I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I, I could I could really use a whole bunch of that. It looks like it gets really cold there though. For sure, but where where do we have to go? Yeah, fair enough. If like if this is our living, I'm not having a like great snow snow me in. Well, let's get back to Shell Lake here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a travel podcast. (laughs) Jim and Evelyn Peterson were parents to nine children. Large farming families were common in Canada's past. More people to work the land. True. The Petersons lived in a modest farm home on an acreage that they had begun farming in 1945. Jim acquired the half section, which is about 320 acres. Damn of land upon returning to Saskatchewan after his military service during World War II, thanks to the Veterans Land Act. Oh, wow. So, from CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, quote, Veterans Land Act passed July 20th, 1942, following a Canadian tradition dating from the 17th century of settling ex-soldiers on the land. Mm. With only a small down payment, ex-servicemen could purchase land with the help of a government loan Additional funds were available for livestock and equipment. Repayment terms allowed settlers re, uh, settlers time to reestablish themselves without incurring heavy financial obligations, end quote. That's fantastic. I think we should continue to do stuff like uh, that. Yeah, it's a good plan. Yeah. Jim's half section abutted his father's quarter section, making the family farm 480 acres when Jim's father retired and turned his portion over to Jim. Imagine owning 480 acres. Yeah. Imagine the cost of owning 480 acres. But despite what you might think about the wealth of a person who owned that amount of land, the Petersons were not a well-to-do family. From an article on the front page of the Star Phoenix on Saturday, August 19th, 1967, titled Typical Small Farmer, quote, The farm was a mixed cattle and grain operation with the yard and outbuildings being at least 30 years old and in disrepair. The family's income was derived through the milking of nine or ten dairy cows, a few head of beef cows, swine and chickens. Mixed grains, wheat and oats were his major crops and probably provided the operational capital for the farm. However, as one man who knew him put it, quote, the day-to-day income for Jim undoubtedly came from the cream checks and family monthly allowance, end quote. Hmm. So they were... Hmm. Not well off. Yeah. And in fact, they were living in a two-bedroom home. So nine kids. Oh, my God. The parents had one room, the kids had the other. Well. And they would have the babies, like the infant, in the room with them. And and land wasn't considered as great an investment as it is now. Mm. You know, you don't hold a lot of worth back then in the property. Well, and I'm sure there's still parts of Saskatchewan and on the prairies where the land isn't worth as much. For sure. Because people aren't farming it anymore. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, just because you, at that point in time, one owned a lot of land does not mean they were uh, diving into Scrooge McDuck's money pit. Exactly. Jim was a humble, community-minded man who didn't like to talk about what had happened during his time overseas mm-hmm. during the war. Mm-hmm. 
He'd not even joined the local branch of the Royal Legion in Shell Lake until 1966. And it wasn't that he didn't want to be involved. He said the dues were an issue as money was tight. Including himself, there were still 10 mouths to feed in that house. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. In the home on August 15, 1967, were, of course, Jim, 47, Evelyn, his wife, 42. The children still residing with them were Jean, 17, Mary, 13, Dorothy, 11, Pearl, 9, William, 5, Phyllis, 4, Colin, 2, and Larry, 1. Woo! I know. The eldest Peterson daughter, Kathy, and her new husband were in British Columbia on their new honeymoon in the second week of August 1967. They were headed out there to start their new lives. Okay. The Peterson children were seen as good kids around the community. They were behaved, they were well behaved in school and liked by their peers and buddies. The entire family was respected in the Shell Lake area. Everything's sounding swell so far. The Petersons did nothing to earn the violence that ended their lives that morning. Mm-hmm. Great. On August 14, 1967, Jim Peterson asked family friend and neighbor, 35-year-old Wildrew Lang, to help him the next day. Wildrew, that's a very farmer name. That's a name I've never heard before and will likely not out of this episode's context. Yeah, well, Carol and I uh, always talk about changing our names to some farmer relatives of mine. <laughs> yeah. And their names were Nellie and Winslow. Oh, those are great. Aren't they great names? Those are great. Yeah. So Wildrew said that he would help Jim the next day. Jim had 50 bushels of wheat left over from his previous crop. Mm-hmm. A bushel of wheat weighs about 60 pounds, just so you know. And Jim needed to utilize Lang's truck for a fee and required his help loading and unloading the commodity at a local grain elevator. Okay, sounds reasonable. Jim was hopeful to earn enough to send his 17-year-old daughter, Jean, to a track and field camp in Dundurn for a week. It was a 185-kilometer drive to Dundurn, so after dropping Jean off, Jim and the rest of the family would make a day of it and entertain themselves there. But first, Jim had to sell this wheat. All quite logical. Exactly. Lang agreed to meet him in one of the Peterson family fields at sunrise, and Wildrew showed up on time, but there was no sign of Jim. So he went to work, placing those 60-pound bushel bags onto the back of his truck. At 9 a.m., having completed the job himself and being tired of waiting for Jim, Wildrew walked across the field and toward the lane that led to the Peterson home. He was thinking that Jim had uncharacteristically overslept. It was not like a farmer in Saskatchewan to oversleep in those days. The hardest working people you can find. And And look at this guy, like... Nobody even showed up, but he's like, I'll just keep doing it all myself. Exactly. Like, yeah. Wildrew found the laneway gate open and noticed that the Peterson cows had not yet been milked, which was highly irregular. Now, I looked around, so how would he know that they had not been milked? Perhaps they hadn't been let out to pasture. Okay. You know, it could have been something like that. So after milking, they might have been in a different place. Yeah. Or is it just they have swollen udders? I, I don't know. Did, do you? I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking swollen udders dripping milk. I don't know how to check for this thing because I am not a dairy farmer. There's got, I'm, I guarantee you somebody out there knows. Somebody will know. So please if you know, us. email us. Yeah, please. But I do believe it's just the cows were still in the place where they were well, that, to sleep. Well, that does make some sense. Maybe after after milking them, you're like, oh, now go run free. Exactly. Enjoy your day. Get more grass, yeah. get more cuds so you yeah. can make more milk. Yeah. But who knows? Huh. 
Anyway, I digress. Please. The family dog, Skippy, walked up to Wildrew without a sound, which was also unusual. Hmm. The dog was typically much livelier. As Wildrew walked toward the house, calling for Jim and receiving no answer, Skippy matched his gait and walked quietly beside him. Oh, wow. By this time, Lang knew in his bones that something was not right. Just, it's such interesting, so interesting hearing the dog's behavior, how differently it was. Like, it, mm-hmm. like the dog is like, I've seen some things. Yeah. Oh. The rear porch door stood ajar. Lang made his way through the porch and pushed open the kitchen door, also ajar. There on the kitchen floor lay his friend Jim Peterson, clad only in his underwear. A pool of blood surrounded him. Mm. Jim had been shot seven times. Wow. The rest of the house was too quiet. It was home to 11 people, after all, and there was not a sound there now. Oh, Jesus. Lang was horrified by the thought of what he might find further into the home. Yeah. He backed out of the house and hopped into the Peterson station wagon. People left their keys in the cars those days, so Wildrew started the car and drove like hell into the village of Shell Lake, four miles away, to call the RCMP. My God, like, think again, think about it now. You just grab, you've got a phone in your pocket and you call, but like, back then, he's got to drive this great distance. Four miles. Thinking about what he has seen yeah. and like, oh. Yep. He told police what he'd seen and was told to head back to the Petersons to meet RCMP Corporal Barry Richards at the head of the drive toward the home. Now, the nearest RCMP detachment was in Spiritwood, 20 miles away. Oh, my God. It must have felt like an eternity waiting for that cop to come. Can you imagine? You're just standing there, like, looking at your watch. So what, what would it also be like like if you, while farming, like an arm got severed or something? Like, how long would it take for medical care? Good luck. Jeez. Once Corporal Richards arrived, Lang was told to wait outside while Richards went into the house alone. What the corporal saw there was like the scene out of the worst horror movie imaginable. There was blood all throughout the house, on the floor, and on the walls. A March 1968 article distributed to newspapers across Canada and written by Canadian magazine's David Carmichael describes what Corporal Richards found. Quote, On a foldaway cot in the living room, beneath a wall plaque that read, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Richard found the body of 11-year-old Dorothy Peterson. She'd been shot in the head. Richards entered the children's bedroom. In one bed were the bodies of Mary, 13, William, 5, and Colin, 2. They had also been shot in the head. In the other bed were Pearl, 9, and 17-year-old Jean. They, too, had been shot in the head. End quote. Oh, my God. I don't think... Uh, if I were to... I mean, whatever capacity, officer, uh, friend who stumbles across it, I, I don't, I think my life would be ruined yeah. after having seen that. Like, oh. poor, the innocence. Yeah, and these kids had been shot with 16 bullets, multiple wounds for each one. Oh my God, such anger. The young officer, as you mentioned, had never seen anything like this, and he was shaken up, so he had to go outside to briefly gather his thoughts yeah. and get some air yeah. before continuing his search. Oh, that poor officer. Richards re-entered the bedroom where the five children lay dead and saw something stirring there. Under the covers, between Pearl and Jean, it was four-year-old Phyllis. She was alive. 
Phyllis was laying face down and been hiding there since the murderer had left. She was miraculously unharmed, although understandably distraught and covered in the blood of her dead siblings. <sighs> so at four, four, you remember. I know you that do. That's the age in which I had uh, my stuff. Uh, some of my stuff and it that's not something yeah. that you you can forget mm -hmm. will forget and it will it will change the course of your life dramatically that poor child phyllis later recalled being terrified hearing someone else in the house after the killer had left oh. it had been quiet for so long when corporal richards pulled back the sheets she thought it was her time to die oh Richards himself was crying as he picked Phyllis up. Oh. As they left, Phyllis remembered seeing her father's body on the kitchen floor as she was carried out of the home. Phyllis was temporarily placed in the care of the neighbors across the street so Richards could go and call for backup. Yeah. It was not until more police arrived that the bodies of the family matriarch, Evelyn Peterson, and her one-year-old son, Larry, were found near a rain barrel at the side of the home. They, too, had been shot. I, yeah, I'm at a loss. Nine victims, mostly children, as I... This is crazy. Nine victims, mostly children. As I was researching the 1959 murder of the four members of the Clutter family of Holcomb, Kansas yeah. came to mind, yeah. and this could easily be called Canada's in cold blood. Yeah. Teams of RCMP investigators, 40 Mounties, locked down the scene and began searching for evidence at the Peterson farm and nearby. The killer had left boot prints in Jim Peterson's blood. Rubber boots matching the tread pattern were purchased by investigators at the local hardware store. Mm. Obviously, word gets around pretty quickly in a rural community when something like this happens. 250 people. Right. And like 40 cops. Yeah. So you have, you have a fifth as many police officers as are people in your village. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tips poured in right away, almost 500. Uh, one was from some older women who were returning from a bingo. They'd seen an unfamiliar car near the Peterson home that night of the murders. They'd even got a partial plate. Cops checked out any car with plates that even vaguely matched. Well, and the thing is, like, you know, in, in a city where we live, uh, a car in the neighborhood that doesn't normally, like, that can be overlooked so easily just because, well, there's thousands of cars a minute. Yeah. But there, where you probably rarely ever see another vehicle on this, it'll stand out. Totally. And that's why they reported it. Yeah. Thanks to casings recovered and bullets from the bodies of the Petersons, it was determined that the killer had used a twenty-two caliber long rifle to murder the family. RCMP officers were tasked to have all owners of twenty-twos in the area fire two shots. They were then to collect the spent casing to be taken to Regina for forensic comparison to those from the crime scene. Mm. And the lab had narrowed down the make of the gun to three possible manufacturers. Mm. So a lot of real police work is being done here right away to figure out what the heck. Yeah. Or who the heck, I should say. Yeah. They, because they've got a maniac on the loose. Yeah. 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 Uh, that amount of people massacred, mm -hmm. that age, yeah. the, the the age of the majority of them, like, it doesn't get much worse. No. 
Everyone in the tiny village and surrounding areas were terrified. There was a killer on the loose. To quote David Carmichael's article, quote, Farmers sat up all night with shotguns, end yeah. quote. Police had roadblocks all over the area, manned by shotgun-wielding officers, and every car was checked. They did not want to miss the killer. No, no. No one around Shell Lake had any idea why someone would want to murder the Peterson family. They were well-liked and stayed out of disputes. No one held any grudges against them. Jim didn't even drink. To anyone's knowledge, he'd never even been to the local liquor store. Oh, wow. He was just a straight-up guy. Yeah, I'm struggling to try to... Uh, it, it, with such violence, too, there's anger. It's deliberate. It doesn't seem like it's just, oh, I went into Rob. Well, the killer did rob the Petersons, too, but he took only $10 from the home. There was no way a sane person could justify nine murders for 10 bucks. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, even with the worth of a dollar in those days, but still. It, 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 there was a want to kill. RCMP began to think the killer might be a psychotic person, mm -hmm. as there was no rhyme or reason to these killings. They didn't know it for sure yet, but they had hit the bullseye with this line of thinking. Oh, good. Okay. And we will break right here. Whew, catch my breath. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. Through gathering evidence left by the killer, studying the scene and the jumbled accounts given by four-year-old Phyllis, police were able to draw a timeline of the events of the crime. Mm -hmm. A strange car had driven into the Peterson's family driveway in the middle of the night, early morning hours, and parked near the house. It's unknown at what point Jim Peterson got out of bed. Was it when the car pulled up or when the killer entered the house? Not that it matters much. Yeah. Jim met the man who was to murder him in the kitchen, where he would fight for his own life and that of his family. Oh, my God. Phyllis would later say in a documentary, quote, I remember Dad yelling at us to stay in bed, that we weren't supposed to get out of bed, end quote. Oh, oh that father. I'm just visualizing, like, fighting. Well, he was a veteran of World War II, and he had a bunch of medals that they had yeah. later found in the house, so he wasn't a stranger to this kind of activity. I'm just trying to picture myself in his shoes, trying to save your kid, like knowing I need to stop this person. Jim fought the attacker in the kitchen as mentioned above. It took the killer seven shots to dispatch the farmer and veteran of World War II. Jim was shot once in the left thigh, once in the forearm, once in the neck, twice in the chest, and twice more in the head. He was... He, like he a was, he, he wasn't going to give. No. Clearly just, you had to end him to stop him. While Jim and the assailant fought in the kitchen, Evelyn picked up one-and-a-half-year-old Larry and made her way out of the bedroom window with him in the yard. Larry had been sleeping in the room with them. They kept him in their room because he was an infant. Yeah, okay. After killing Jim, the killer needed to reload and went outside, only to find Evelyn and the baby had escaped. 
The killer shot Evelyn once in the back and five times in the head. My. She crumpled to the ground beside the Peterson home with the baby in her arms. The killer coldly left the baby laying beside his deceased mother and walked back into the house where he began shooting the children who'd been screaming and crying the whole time. And again, it, it can't, it's not, he's not doing this to be like, oh, I got to shut them up or somebody will hear. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you're just a killer. Yeah, th- this is about killing. Yeah. Phyllis hid under the covers, lying completely still between her older sisters. The killer had not really noticed her, or so she thought. He later said that he did know that she was there, but decided, quote-unquote, to let her live. It's unknown why. After shooting the five children, the man began rifling through the drawers in the dresser in the children's bedroom. It's unknown what he might be looking for, maybe some more money or something. In the same documentary mentioned above, Phyllis said, I remember looking at my sister. I think I was going to ask her what we should do or what was going on. And when I looked at her, then I knew she was dead. Oh, my God. So you're four looking into the dead face of your older sibling. I'm shook. This is where it was a little hard to write this last thing. Baby Larry was most likely the last of the family shot before the killer got into his car and drove off. Larry had crawled behind his mother and was left there, and that's where he died. Again, this is a want to kill. Because one and a half years, you're not leaving a witness behind. Like, it's not like... There's no reason. There's no reason. Ever. At all. No. Other than this is what I would like to or do. Or do you have a grudge against this family that you want to destroy them all? Or A one and a half year old. Like, I know. Oh. Oof. Yeah. Police were looking at known psychotics in the area being reported to them by the public. One name was a 21 year old farmer from Leask. I think it's Leask. 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 It looks like Leask. Leask, Saskatchewan, 25 miles away. His name was Victor Ernest Hoffman. Okay. Sounds guilty. (laughs) Well, we said his three names, so usually that's an indicator. Victor had just recently been released from the North Battleford Hospital for the Insane, and that's not my words. That is what they called it at the time. Mm. They said he was okay, and his parents said in the press, they believed that if a doctor said Victor was okay, he was. Yeah, I can understand. Sure. Three days after the murder, RCMP officers were sent to investigate the tip on Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, 22, matching one of the three manufacturers the police were looking for, was found on the back seat of a gray 1950 Plymouth. They confiscated it for testing. Good. A pair of rubber boots matching the tread pattern found at the crime scene were also confiscated from Hoffman's porch. See, again, so we're so conditioned nowadays to be like, well, there's so many people own these boots. You know, there's so many of these guns. Such a small area. Yep. According to Peter Tadman's book, Shell Lake Massacre, Victor expressed concerns that his boots were being taken away as he might get wet feet without them. Oh, deal with it. As the items were tested... Surveillance was set up on the Hoffman farm. They didn't want anyone getting away if he, in fact, was involved. That same day, there were more than 1,500 mourners at the Peterson funeral at the Shell Lake Cemetery in the warm summer afternoon. Press and police were in attendance, too, as the caskets were lowered into a common grave. 
Larry, who had died beside his mother, was buried in the same casket with her. Oh, God, I'm going to cry. Kathy and her husband, Lee Hill, were in attendance. She's the oldest daughter. They had returned from Chetwin, B.C., where they had just moved to start their lives as newlyweds. As members of the local legion assisted with the pallbearer duties, a young bugler played Reveille to mark the passing of the veteran, Jim Peterson. This is heart-destroying. Yeah. Phyllis was staying with relatives in Shell Lake, and the community rallied to ensure that a collection was taken up for her. They raised like a thousand bucks really quickly. Oh, my God. The laboratory confirmed the next day that the gun used in the Peterson murders was the exact same one that had been taken from the back seat of Victor Hoffman's car. Hmm. At 5 p.m., Victor Ernest Hoffman was taken into custody. Good. The police found Hoffman in a field working with his brother. Victor was cuffed without resistance, then driven back to the RCMP detachment 80 miles away in North Battleford by Corporals Gothrop and Noland. From David Carmichael's article, quote, Gothrop asked Hoffman if he had a 22 caliber rifle. Hoffman replied yes, and the cops took it. He thought for a moment, then said, If that gun killed the Petersons, does that make me a murderer? The police did not give him an answer, but Fraser asked him what kind of person would kill the Petersons. He was another RCMP officer who was there. Mm. Hoffman replied, they'd have to be crazy. Gothrop said it was a good thing two of the Peterson children were still alive. Hoffman stiffened, but made no comment. Mm. On the outskirts of North Battleford, the cruiser passed a cemetery. Hoffman studied the tombstones. There are a lot of dead people in there. He said quietly, end quote. Oh, what an odd bird already. Yeah. During interrogation, at first Hoffman denied having committed the murders, but police pressed him. The treads of his boots matched the bloody footprints at the crime scene, and his rifle was definitely the same one that had been used. Also from Carmichael's article, quote, Gothrop said quietly, you might as well get it off your mind. Hoffman lowered his head, a minute or two passed. Then, Hoffman stood up. Okay, I killed them, he told the Mounties. I collected 17 cartridges. I tried to change the rifling. I thought I'd pick them all up. I should have burned down the house. Then you'd have never found them. I don't know what made me do it. End quote. Hmm, I suspect he does. In a tape-recorded interview with RCMP, Victor Hoffman began to recount the harrowing story of what happened at the Petersons' home. Even though the interviewing uniformed officers had left their sidearms outside the interview room, Hoffman motioned toward their holsters and said, quote, I could grab one of those guns and kill you all, but I can't kill any more. Interesting. In a monotone voice, he told officers everything he could recall. From Carmichael's article, quote, even when he describes how the children screamed and begged for him not to kill them, even when he describes how Mrs. Peterson pleaded for her life, even when he describes how Jim Peterson took bullet after bullet and still kept coming at him, his voice never loses its matter-of-factness, its casualness. Even when he tells of his own revulsion afterwards, how he might have shot himself if he had known where his heart was, after he had seen how hard the Petersons had died, that voice remains totally devoid of emotion, 
end quote. Yeah, we, we hear that often. I mean, uh, Gary Ridgway, uh, BTK, mm-hmm. you know, when you hear them telling of what they've done, it's just like they're reading a very boring story. Yeah. A very bland story, not boring. Yeah. The arrest of Victor Hoffman was announced to the press and newspapers on Monday, August 21st, 1967. They published photos of the admitted killer. He was still clad in his work shirt and jeans and seen flanked by RCMP officers as they led him to and from his arraignment, where he'd first faced nine charges of capital murder. As the 50 or so spectators, including the eldest Peterson daughter, Kathy Hill, packed into the tiny courtroom, looked on, Hoffman was remanded to the North Battleford Hospital he'd been released from just weeks before. And they wanted to do a psychiatric evaluation on him for 30 days. Understandable. Hoffman's response to this was, quote, does that mean I'll get the shock treatment? End quote. I don't think he could get enough. Well, outside the courtroom, at least 300 people gathered to get a glimpse of the gunman. Neighbors began speaking to the media about Victor Hoffman. As is often typical, the words shy and loner came up again and again in interviews, followed by an exclamation of shock and surprise at what he'd done. Yeah. In that same article by David Carmichael titled, I Could Never Kill Again, Victor Hoffman's mother Stella and father Robert related their memories of Victor as an overly sensitive and odd boy. Mm. Quote, Victor Hoffman had always been a strange child. His mother could tease the other five children and get a rise out of them, but she couldn't get a rise out of Victor. When she teased him, he would pull away from her and lie down on the couch and close his eyes. No one knew what he was thinking. He was still a baby when he had his first temper tantrums. They weren't ordinary tantrums. They were frightening. Stella Hoffman remembers how he would lie on the floor and bang his head against it, and how she would have to hold him in her arms until the wildness passed. And there was this hair pulling. No matter what she did, she could not get him to stop it. He would tug at his hair until it finally came out. Although she flicked his fingers with a pencil when she caught him doing it, he persisted until he created a permanent bald spot on the side of his head, end quote. That is pretty fascinating. So he was a bizarre little dude. Yeah, there, there's definitely something a bit odd going on. I mean, when I, while I was writing and researching, I don't know if I'm correct, so I'm just speculating. The word autism came to mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. and I don't know if he was displaying autistic behaviors because I'm not a doctor or anything yeah, like yeah. that, but my lay person's ideas of the development of mm-hmm. it lead me to down that road. Yeah, it's a, it's a distinct possibility and they're, they're, I can see why you would feel that and think it. Yeah. 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 He was fearful of people and social situations. He often seemed to be inhabiting his own planet. Uh, he hated school because it demanded social interaction. Yeah. He spent much of his time alone, even at home with his family. And one thing in this article that Carmichael wrote uh, mentioned his mother noticed him just out staring at the stars, you know, for hours on end. Hmm. Victor claimed to suffer from frequent headaches he said were due to pressure in his skull. He'd wear a piece of cloth around his head to help with the pain. And he also stated that at times unseen hands would come out of the ether and choke him. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, He dropped out of school after flunking in the ninth grade. Just months before the murders of the Petersons, Victor had a violent psychotic break with reality. 
from Carmichael's article, quote, On May 27, 1967, he stood in the farmyard and fired three shots into the air with a three oh three rifle, and a three oh three is a deer rifle. Mm. When his mother asked what he was doing, he simply told her, I shot the devil. Oh, okay. That afternoon, at Victor's request, Reverend Edward Post, pastor of the nearby Lutheran Church, came to the Hoffman farm and talked to Victor for about half an hour. Stella Hoffman couldn't hear the conversation, but later, as Victor and the minister were standing in the yard near the minister's car, she heard Victor tell him, I want to kill mom. Uh. That evening, that evening, Victor said something about devils and angels. The next day, the Hoffmans took Victor to a doctor who suggested they take him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist recommended that Victor be placed in Saskatchewan Mental Hospital at North Battleford, end quote. Oh, man, I would hate to hear that uttered from one of my kids. Right. I'm thinking about killing dad. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Here it was discovered that Victor had been having hallucinations. One vision that kept recurring, Victor claimed it had haunted him for 10 years, was a threatening visage of the devil, black, tall, and nude with a long black tail. The devil wanted Victor to sell him his soul or suffer for eternity. Neither are a good option. He said he'd seen God and angels as well. Now, this is all before he kills the Petersons. Months and, before. And, and this was all documented? This was all a all part documented, of the... All documented, yes. Okay. All right. Victor was diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic and put on a high dose of Haldol to manage the hallucinations. He received 12 shock treatments through the month of June. At one point, according to Carmichael's article, he said, at least I'm free from the devil. <sighs> now, shock treatments, they are now called ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. It's a medical treatment still used today, and it is commonly used in patients with severe major depression or bipolar disorder that hasn't responded to regular treatments. Mm -hmm. From Wikipedia, in the 1940s and early 50s, ECT was usually given in an unmodified form, quote, yeah. without muscle relaxants, and the seizure resulted in full-scale convulsion. A rare but serious complication of unmodified ECT was fracture or dislocation of the long bones. Jeez. Sounds brutal. Yeah. In the later 50s and 60s, when Victor got his 12 shock treatments, a muscle relaxant would be given to patients to modify the convulsions, but it they would still be awake for it. Yeah, uh, my understanding is uh, my mom is a retired psych nurse. My understanding is uh, nowadays, currently, it's a pretty passive treatment, but... Yeah, according to a psychiatry.org article on ECT, today the practice seems more humane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the time of each treatment, a patient is given general anesthesia and a muscle relaxant and electrodes are placed to the scalp at precise locations. The patient's brain is stimulated with brief controlled series of electrical pulses. This causes a seizure within the brain that lasts for approximately a minute. The patient is asleep for the procedure and wakens after five or ten minutes much as from minor surgery. The most common side effects of ECT on the day of treatment include nausea, headache, fatigue, confusion, and slight memory loss, which may last minutes to hours, end quote. Yeah, yeah. I, I think people still, and I get it because it's quite sensational, have the, uh, they view those early treatments as how it's continued to practice. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was in the hospital myself in the 90s, I saw a patient come back from an ECT session. Mm-hmm. 
And for hours afterward, she sat just like a zombie in the corner. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know who any of us were. Hmm. She said later that it did help, but she'd been in and out of hospital multiple times over the years for the same procedure. Like she had had multiple rounds Mm -hmm. of ECT over the years. So can you imagine you have to go back in and get ECT year after year after year because your depression comes back? Um, I I certainly wouldn't want that if it helped with my depression. I would yeah, say right. bring, bring it on. But uh, to uh, me, it, it was pretty scary to witness that, to see, because I knew her personality going yep, in. Yep. And then I saw her personality afterward. And really, she was not the same person. But how much of that could have been the medications they gave her to, to make her drowsy and out? No, it was like days yeah. after. Mm, shit. And they say hours, but it was literally days. Mm. I noticed she was very, very different. Mm, wow. So it's not something that I'd like to go through. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. But I, don't think, I don't think anybody associates it with like greatness. No. Oh, I had my like, ECT and it was just yeah. amazing. It sounds like a fun time. Yeah. Not really. Doctors in North Battleford released Hoffman into the care of his parents in late July, feeling him fit to resume life outside and on the farm. Even though he was acting bizarrely in the days leading up to the murders, the Hoffman family said, like we mentioned before, he must be okay. The doctors, he must be okay. The doctors let him out after all. Yeah. And it sounds like him acting strangely is pretty, pretty regular. So it's not like any specific, uh, extremely concerning activity happened. But he did go on to murder nine people. Well, that, yeah, there was that. So his psych assessment after the murders determined he was insane. Hmm. And what we now call not criminally responsible when he murdered the Peterson family. From David Carmichael's article, quote, In Dr. Hoffer's opinion, Hoffman, on the morning he killed the Petersons, was doing something he had to do. He knew that killing was against the law, but he did not feel bound by that law. He felt he was above it, immune from it. In killing the Petersons, he did not feel fear, anger, or depression, he acted mechanically like a, robo- like a robot programmed to commit murder. Mm. A jury who heard the doctor, who examined Hoffman before the murders, and the psychiatrist who examined him afterwards, found him innocent of murder by reason of insanity, end quote. And it's, I think, important to recognize that to get that kind of uh, a, finding mm-hmm. back then, mm-hmm where this stuff was even less uh, yeah. uh, considered legit science. This reminds me of Jeffrey Arnberg, mm-hmm. who we talked about mm-hmm. very recently, mm-hmm. another NCR case. And it he he was doing what he did yep. because he felt he had to do it. Yeah. He believed yep. there was no other way for him to get through his life unless he committed these acts. It's, it's, if you don't suffer from schizophrenia, it's impossible to fully understand uh, what it is like. You know, you see, uh, there's some good movies out there that do, a, well, I can only assume do an accurate portrayal, but it's, um, you're, 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 you're convinced, like, what, mm-hmm. what you're doing isn't, you're not questioning whether it's, uh, real or not, what you're doing, it needs to happen. Carol and I have, we have a relative who suffers from schizophrenia. You've mentioned, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I have two. Oh. But uh, this other one, he has, he talks 
incessantly about Nazis mm. and uh, uh, believed his girlfriend was a famous person yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And he really believed those it, things. To them, it's as real as you are sitting in mm-hmm. front of me. Yep. Like it's not, there's no questioning. It's not like, uh, I don't, is Mike not like, you're convinced like, yep. that that is real. Yeah. I can't imagine uh, being at that point. I mean, I've been in psychosis. Mm-hmm but only for a brief time. I can't mm-hmm. imagine that being your your default state. You're 21 years old, living your entire 21 years. Since, thinking he, was t- that, since he was 10 years old. You know, thinking that these things you're seeing are real and you, mm-hmm. that what you're hearing is real. Yep. Having these conversations with people who aren't real, but to you, it's real. Yeah. Not And I'm not at all trying to say what he did is excusable. No. Because they, hell no, but... You mean, yeah, these are really interesting cases. Yes. That's why I'm compelled to tell these stories. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is because. Good, healthy dialogue comes from them. Yeah, I agree. And there's a lot of unhealthy dialogue around some of these cases right now. So. Yeah. So let's try to facilitate some good conversation about this. Yeah. It's okay to be angry and to hate the person, but yet understand mm-hmm. why they do what they do. Understanding doesn't mean liking and acceptance. It's it like ha- mean- hate the act, but love the actor. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And it's exactly that. Yeah. You, I, I despise this man. I don't like him for what he has done, but I can stand back and go, I, I can't understand where his brain was. Now. Yeah. Hoffman would spend the rest of his life in institutions. In March of 1988, he was transferred to Penetanguishing Mental Health Center north of Toronto. We've heard of this place before where um, some other high-profile NCR cases have landed, including Jeffrey Arenberg. Mm. This is where author Peter Tadman interviewed Hoffman for the book Shell Lake Massacre. Mm. Many of the exchanges are bizarre, but insightful and well worth a thorough read. And I only included one just oh, yeah. because I didn't want to you know, rewrite all of Mr. Tadman's book. <laughs> yes. But, but he, he, he really digs into this gentleman, uh, Victor Hoffman and oh, what yeah? his motivations were. Yeah. It's super fascinating read. So if you can get your hands on a copy of it, do. Mm. It's called Shell Lake Massacre and it's got a red cover. I've got it right here. Typically online, unless there's a weird sort of printing of it, which is very rare, um, another printing you can get it for like 20 bucks at that time, but typically it goes for like between 150 and $400 online. Oh my God, probably your million dollar book. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so in the book, Peter Tadman asks Victor Hoffman, if you could ever talk to Phyllis, you know, the little four-year-old, she's about 29 now, what would you say to her? Would you say that you're sorry? Or what do you think you'd say if she walked in here? Oh man, I want to hear this reply. Victor replied, I don't really feel sorry about the crime. I think I benefited from it. It helped a lot. I'm sorry that her brothers and sisters are dead and her parents. I imagine that I could apologize to her, but I don't believe that it would do any good. They're already dead anyway. So what's the sense of saying you're sorry? She'll say, Maybe you're sorry, but when are you getting out? And he giggles at this. And that'll probably be never. What a, like, 
there's that's why I say it's very odd interactions that uh he and Mr. Tadman have in regard to this. It's so analytical and void of emotion. Right? Like he can't connect to it somehow. Like he, I, he, I talked about it in the in the Jeffrey Arnberg yeah, episode. Because yeah. Arnberg said similar things. Yeah. Yeah, just like a complete disassociation from from uh, what he'd done. Understanding emotions, yep. especially in others. Like, yep. Wow. Victor Ernest Hoffman died of cancer, still under care, in 2004. Mm. Newlyweds Kathy and Lee Hill took in four-year-old Phyllis Peterson, the only other surviving member of the Peterson family. They raised her until she was 15 when she moved in with an aunt. She was married in 1986. Phyllis also spoke to Peter Tadman for his book. Mm. She spoke about her memories and how she'd been constantly asked to talk about the events of oh. August 15, 1967, over the years. She seemed, throughout the interview, to have adjusted well, considering what she'd gone through so early in life. Oh, my God. In the book, Tadman asks, What do you think of him, referring to Hoffman, as an individual? Phyllis answered, As an individual, he's a sick person. I mean, I've never seen him, but I'm sure... That if, if he has good days type of thing, like some people do, I'm sure that he regrets what he did on those good days. If in fact he does have good days. I don't know. I don't know how sick he is. I don't know what his personality is like. I don't really blame him either. It was him who did the actual action. But as a person, I don't think he had what it took upstairs to be able to lay blame on him. I don't think his mind was there, and you can't blame somebody who doesn't have a mind for doing something. Holy shit. What an amazing... Uh, like I, insight. I yeah. don't think many people can fully uh, understand the strength that she, in being yeah. able to be that objective. Mm -hmm. Like that. that is strength. Yeah. That is a really, really special person. Well, she wasn't always so kind in every interview. That, for sure. But No, for yeah. sure. She later said in the documentary about the murders, they say he's insane. Well, he must be. No sane person would have done what he's done. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are days when she's far less uh, sympathetic. Well, Phyllis herself passed away in May of 2019. Oh. She's buried in Shellbrook, Saskatchewan, which is fairly close, mm. but she spent the last 15 years of her life without the worry of Victor Hoffman being released yeah. because he was already gone. Yeah, yeah. So at least she had that 15 years of relative freedom from him. Holy shit, what a case. Yeah, right? Wow. So there you go. That is- uh, We just covered a little bit of everything there. That's Shell Lake. So everybody has asked us to cover this and now we've done it. So you, you, you can't ask for that one anymore. Yeah. Well, I done. mean, you can, but it's done. So deal with it. You can ask away. <laughs> yeah. Just but, listen. But yeah, and we will tell you, okay, done. Here you go. There you go. Yeah. Oh, somebody, didn't somebody want to say like, you guys should cover the missing feet. And it's like, yeah, that was episode one. I have had numerous, <laughs> I've had numerous uh, requests for stuff that we've already yeah, done. Now yeah. that we're a hundred episodes Which in. is, exactly, it, it, it's understandable. It's understandable. But here's one thing I noticed, and I'm not making light of this. Here's another family named Peterson that oh mur my. there's murder in. Yeah, Scott Peterson. Right? The staircase. 
Yeah. And uh, then, then you have uh, Lacey that, Peterson. Yeah, you have the cop uh, who yep. was a Peterson. Yep. It, it's bizarre. It really is. Yeah, and I heard it on another podcast. Um, you do not want to have the last name Peterson. For, if you for do, just for true crime reasons. If you do, immediately change it to like yeah. And I'm Smith not. And please, people who are Petersons, don't email me and say, "Hey, our family's fine," because I know you are. Yeah, I it, know you're just fine. Yeah, it just is bizarre it that is we keep hearing reality. In, yeah, yeah. I guess it's just a common name. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's not as many Hemingways out there. No, no, there aren't. No, Peterson. I'm sure there's a lot of Smiths. Like I went through a weird time when the, the young man named Michael Brown was murdered. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was like, I who is that. Mike Brown? And yeah. it was like, I just wanted, I, I understand yeah. it, was, it was him, Yeah, but it's also me. Yeah. It was very, very weird. And uh, yeah, I got an email from somebody who they heard Michael Brown you know, was shot by police. Yeah. And somebody who they were telling this person in passing and they thought they were talking about me. Oh my God. Because my name is Michael Brown. Yeah. yeah so I get this email saying for about 20 seconds of my life, I thought you had been murdered by the police. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. Yeah. I so, can't imagine. So Peterson's, you... I understand your pain. In yeah. The, yeah. In a, in a way. Yeah. But, I, can't, uh, I can't imagine what you would do to get shot by the cops, but I can't either. Yeah, if there would have, I would have to be drinking and drugging again at some in some regard. Yeah, just yeah. off my rocker. Yeah. Whew. Anyway, uh, how about those Patreons? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Well, this week's good eggs mm. are a few we've missed, and they followed my direction to email and say, hey, Mike, I think you missed me. Brilliant. Fantastic. Brilliant. First up is Kathy Shedder from St. Cloud, Florida. Thank you, Kathy. Sorry we missed you. Yep. Sorry, Kathy. Are you coming to uh, CrimeCon? We're hoping so. Yeah, you should come. You should come. Yeah, because you live in Florida. And Keep we know that maybe you live in, I don't know where uh, St. Cloud is, but... If it is close to Orlando, or even if it's not, just drive down and see us. Yeah, keep your peepers out for a discount code. Yeah, well, it's it's there. Our discount code is here. So Open can, your peepers for the discount can, code. It's I, Maybe I should open my peepers. It's Poutine 2020. Oh. Yeah. Uh, go to CrimeCon.com and get 10% off your tickets and we'll using you. Poutine 2020, and you'll get to meet us and even Carol. Yeah, and Joanna's talking about maybe one. Oh, interesting. To, yeah. Interesting. So uh, extra hugs for you, uh, Cassie, because we missed you. There you go. Um, from New Westminster, British Columbia, is Christy Aralano. Christy. I consider New West my hometown because that's pretty much where most yeah. of my formidable time You was. did a lot of your devilry there? I did. Yes, I, I did. So, Christy, uh, uh Wicked to know that you live. Wicked awesome. You just live across the P Patillo Bridge. Yeah. Patulo. Yeah. I used to call it Patella. A lot of people do. Like kneecap. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people still call yeah. it that. It's a Patillo. There you go. So thank you, Christy. Thank you much, Lee. Uh, another one we missed was Jessica Murphy from North Weymouth, Massachusetts. Speaking of pack the car and have it yet. <laughs> and wear a sweater. Is there, a, is there like, a South? Ask Weymouth? not what your country can do for you. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. oh, yeah. 
do yeah, JFK. really deep here. I know. Yeah. Jeez, Mike. So thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Muchos gracias, and thank you for sending the email reminder. Oh, I really appreciate yeah. the people who did that. Yeah, all of the gracias. Yeah, because we do want to say your name. There's no reason we shouldn't say it. No, no, we're not harboring any latent resentment towards anybody. <laughs> None whatsoever. No. Nothing but gratitude, and and um, if we could type emojis, they would be all hearts. All hearts. All, all hearts. Including a few black ones, just because it's the start Dark, dark hearts. Yeah, but primarily red hearts for you. Primarily. Oh, maybe even a green one. Yeah. <laughs> Next up is Aaron Ferguson from Kansas City, Missouri. Aaron Ferguson. Thank you, Aaron. Uh-oh. Super thank you. Uh-oh. Well, here we have one. I'm not sure where this person is from. Her name is Claudia Ginty. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to do some reverse engineering here. It looks like, well, her email might be from the United Kingdom. Don't I don't need these hit, these tips. Okay. I can I can reverse engineer okay. and d- deduce a lot just from the name. So, what was the name? Claudia Ginty. So, Claudia. Claudia, that is a very uh uh Brazilian name. Okay. Very Brazilian. So, I like Brazilian wax. Well, I mean, I'm sure that has origins in Brazil, so yes. Okay. Uh, so clearly, clearly, uh, the parents are either Brazilian or huge fans of Brazil. But, so they named her Claudia, but that doesn't necessarily mean she lives in Brazil. So the last name was... Ginty. Ginty, which is a very British name. Oh, there you go. It's a very British name. So, Hello, Ginty! Well, I think of McGinty. Yeah, well, as you should. Oh, Mr. McGinty, he's got his pants off again. So if she's, let's see, so if she's of Brazilian uh, uh, And she's she's Ginty. And she lives in the UK. So what would a Brazilian do who lives in the UK? We're spending an awful long time on this. Well, it needs to be. This is called science. Uh, So... uh, a, a Brazilian living in the UK would be working as a... Oh, I know. What? Clearly. Uh, there's only one job for that individual. Soccer ball pumper-upper. N- no, but very good guess. No. Uh, uh, lawn bowling grounds maintenance. Nice. Yeah. Just trimming the trimming, trimming the hedges is, you gotta, is, is, and the grass. Yeah. It t- requires very good groomsmanship. Excellent. Yeah. See? Next up, we have from Stewartsville, New Jersey, Amber D. Tortorelli. Hey, what a great name. Tortorelli. Yeah. Well, I know who you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. That, but that's Tortorello. It's tor- exa- that's exactly. So she's not related to the former oh, a-hole who, <laughs> who coached the Canucks. But man, what a lot of hilarious sound bites from that guy. But oh my God. Right? Yeah. But that's not you, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you Amber. Yeah. Um, here we have, uh, her username is Never Diplomatic, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny, that but her real good. name is, and we're going to blow it up, blow up your spot here, Adriana Goodson, and she's from Midway, B.C. Oh, well, that, well, I've never heard of it. You've Mid- never, Midway, no, BC? I have never heard of Midway, B.C. either. I'm, I can take a guess as to where it is geographically in B.C. Yeah. Probably Midpoint. Right? Yeah. Next up, we have Cindy Campbell. Oh, that's a nice name. Yeah. I think, let me try this. Oh, I would love to hand this. Yes. Let's see how scientific I am. I'm I'm sure you're going to name it. So, Cindy Campbell. Mm -hmm. 
Cindy Kemble is an animal behaviorist. Wow. She teaches animals how to behave. Okay. Oh. Okay. She's kind of like the dog whisperer yeah. kind of thing. Any specific animal or is she just a broad, oh, in broad? Like lemurs. <laughs> lemurs. Yeah. Mostly lemurs. I think probably like the number one. Some kangaroos. One Number one behavior not, or the one number one behavior to teach they lemurs to don't jump poop. off the cl- uh, They tend to throw poop as well. So she teaches, yep, she teaches them how not to do that. Don't run off cliffs. Yeah. No, that's lemmings, Scott. Ah, there's an L involved. (laughs) It's close enough. Lemurs look like little robbers. But anyway, so yes, she is an animal behaviorist. Okay. Training lemurs and kangaroos and maybe the odd goat. Where? Where would this Um, be happening? Well, Antarctica. Okay. So I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to like poke holes in your, your. But there's an Antarctic zoo. Is there? Sure. <laughs> okay, and lots of lemurs and kangaroos. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna trust you on. They this all one. have like little parkas on and stuff like that, and they have like glove warmers. Okay. And a lot of the smaller animals, the kangaroos are nice, and we'll keep them in their pouches. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna put my trust in you with this one, Mike. Well, I have to do put my trust in you every week, so this is what. And have I let you down? Often. <laughs> <laughs> And you're welcome. (laughs) And scene. (laughs) No, next up we have Terry Bell. Mm -hmm. And we're not sure where Terry's from either, but, uh, hmm. You you don't have any inclination at all? I have no inclination. Mm. I think this one's on you. I have many inclinations. Well, so the word Terry. Terry. Bell. Terry Bell. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Terry is clearly, that's a name, very, very common in um, Denmark. Denmark? Yeah. So maybe Maya knows her. Yeah, probably. Our good friend Maya. Yeah. Well, who is also from Denmark. We've just, we've named two of the three people there. <laughs> and <laughs> There's so, more people in Denmark than that. Okay, it's, fine, it's a fine. It's a large. Fine, it's up to seven. Okay, uh, great. Country. Uh, so Terry Bell. Terry yeah. Bell. Oh, Claire, yeah, so Denmark. Denmark. Denmark, clearly. Without that's no everybody could knew that before I even had to say she's it. not an animal behaviorist, is she? No, 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 okay, good. no, not even a human behaviorist. No, yeah, uh, what she does is inspired by her last name, okay, she's a bell ringer in for boxing matches. Oh, that's yeah, and you know, I've always kind of wanted that job, yeah. Like well, I know now in, you've got a source. You've got an in. And they have a, like, in some UFC, when the last 30 Cla- seconds, the they clacker. have the, cla- yeah. the clapper. Yeah, clacker. Yeah. I want to be the clacker guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But she specializes in, she's not a clacker, because her last name, last name wasn't clacker, so that was never something that motivated her. Uh, right. But, yeah, no, she's a, a bell ringer in, in boxing matches. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty great gig. It sounds like a great but you, game. But your focus, the, tra- the challenge with it is you're focused most of your time on the clock, not the fighting. Because mm. you've got to make sure, like, if it goes an extra couple of seconds, you've really just screwed things up. So you're really just watching a clock, and then it, you've got to be right on that two, one. <laughs> you've really got to be on point. So, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, because... If you, you let it, it go, it's going to the fighters are confused. Maybe um, and shots will be here's, landed. Here's the problem. Mm. I would always want to save my favorite fighters by the bell. It's yeah, like, see? oh, it's almost three minutes. It's like 
a minute and 30 seconds into the fight and Conor McGregor is looking like he's going to You shouldn't have go said to, this. Ding, ding. And I, but should, I'm a terrible bell ringer. You shouldn't have said this, Mike, because, wow. well, now you, Was there there, a controversy? You're, ne- you're never going to get your opportunity. Well, I... I because I you really publicly don't. stated that you would be... Do you, uh, ever th- do you think that opportunity would even have come my way? Yeah, absolutely. As this podcast grows... Bell ringer. Yeah. You'll be sought after for all kinds of trades you hadn't thought of. Bizarre. It is. It is, but facts. Yeah, life is a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, we did get some donut money this week, so thanks to everybody who was a patron. Uh, we did get some donut money, and it was... Uh, we got from... And from Sylvia Bailey, we we got a, a little bit of a donation here. Oh, and sweet. she says, congrats on 100 episodes and counting. Whoop, whoop. You guys are awesome. I'm so glad I get to listen to your show every week. Oh. Thank you, Sylvia Bailey. Super, super thank you. Kara Sentence, she sent us some donut money. Thank you, Karen, or Kara. Thank you, Kara, for your uh, pledge. I feel like Jerry Lewis here. Wow. <laughs> But you you managed to get it out in a sentence. I don't. <laughs> oh, but she spell oh. she spells sentence a little differently. Yes, yes with an a, yes, a. But thank instead of an e n c e. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate you. And last up this week is Allison Smith. Oh, thank you so much, Allison. Super, thank you, Allison. Muchas gracias. Yeah, and don't forget to leave notes, folks. When you're leaving us a little bit of a, a patron donation. Please leave us a note and let us know where yep. you're from, who, you, a little bit about yourself, like yep. whatever. Yep. Um, if I don't recommend you write a book because I probably won't be able to read the whole thing. I mean, Lord knows I won't. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, it's on the screen. You'll probably read it. Yeah, I still probably won't. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show and everybody who sent donut money. If you want to help support the show yourself and you haven't done so yet, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, we are going to be at CrimeCon in Orlando, May 1st to 3rd, 2020, and the promo code is poutine2020. Use it. It will help the show, and you'll get 10% off. What was that code again, Mike? Poutine 2020. Mm, Poutine 2020. And we're working on a new phone number for you folks that's a toll-free number, so everybody who has hesitated to call us because you think you have to pay long distance will guess what? Screw that noise. Yep. You can call. We're getting the, we've got a new phone number on the way, and it's going to be like a 1877 number. And 1877, sexy bastards. No, it's not that. No. Um, check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Please. It's how we get a lot of listeners. It really is. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody.
new on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.